Hi, I'm Kieran Kelly, and welcome back to this series on critical theory from the Christian Institute. In part one, Dr. Sharon James took us through what critical theory is and where it came from. This time she exposes the five pillars of critical theory before going on to consider its impact on the church and how Christians should respond. Just a reminder that you'll also find what she has to say covered in this booklet, Critical Theory, Challenging Truth and Reality, or for the very short version in this leaflet, Critical Theory. We've seen that critical theory called people to action to end all the unequal outcomes in society. Now, one way of doing that would be to sow suspicion and mistrust between different groups in society. Another way would be to deny the reality of truth claims. The claims of a victim group can then never be challenged by objective evidence. And so today, in 2023, countless people go to work scared of falling foul of diversity, equity and inclusion policies. Using the wrong language could land them in front of a disciplinary committee, accused variously sexism, homophobia, transphobia, racism, disablism. And we can't escape the reach of all of this. It's the outworking of the various critical theories that have emerged from critical theory. Some describe these critical theories as the unlovely offspring of the unholy union of Marxism and postmodernism. What matters to you is that your daughter may come home from school saying that she's really a boy. See there the reach of critical gender theory. You may get mugged, but you're not in a minority group. So your attacker may get a lighter sentence than if you were gay. That would reflect the leverage of critical legal theory. You may be the best qualified person applying for a job, but the company has to meet its diversity targets. So you may not even get an interview. That may be an outworking of critical race theory. Now, many people are deeply concerned about all this, but dare not speak out. Many are intimidated into saying things they know to be untrue because they don't want to risk their job or their reputation. Now, how have these ideas gained such an extraordinary stranglehold so quickly? We've already commented on the way in which language has been manipulated to push people into questioning former assumptions. Those who are content in their family or their job or their church may be accused of suffering from a false consciousness. They've been duped into going along with the status quo. By remaining passive, they're unconsciously complicit in an unjust system. They need to wake up to recognise the reality of structural injustice, which keeps so many oppressed. Now, many, of course, really are scared of questioning critical theory and its outworkings, isn't it just about achieving social justice, they ask? And as Christians, don't we want to see more social justice? And so we need to understand that the single most powerful strategy adopted by the architects of critical theory was to hijack the word justice. The true meaning of justice is defined by God. God is the God of justice. He demands that rulers rule with justice according to the norms of his universal and perpetual moral law. He wrote that moral law on tables of stone and has placed it on every human heart. And if everyone lived in accordance with the moral law, there would be perfect justice. 
In a sinful world, tragically, we do find exploitation and evil. And sometimes whole societies are characterised by gross injustice. Sometimes institutions are thoroughly corrupt. The strong do oppress the weak. Sometimes groups are discriminated against in various ways that result in multiple layers of suffering. And as Christians, we do oppose injustice. Through church history, we find the followers of Christ seeking out, speaking out for, acting on behalf of the oppressed and the needy. They've taken the lead in numerous social campaigns. And I trace that story in how Christianity transformed the world. Now, such followers of Christ have, of course, been faithful to scripture. Through the Bible, throughout the Bible, there are searing indictments of oppression and injustice. And in a fallen, sinful world, God ordains that rulers should punish evil and promote good. And he demands that rulers should judge impartially. All alike stand under the same law. And of course, without enforcement of the rule of law, there is no security of life or property. No incentive to create the wealth that can lift families and nations out of poverty. And in those societies which have been impacted by the biblical worldview, inequalities have been mitigated by the Christian qualities of generosity, compassion, social responsibility, as well as by numerous reform movements. But radical activists of the 20th century viewed all reform movements as simply papering over the cracks of a hopelessly unequal civilization. It needed to be pulled down, not reformed. The architects of critical theory denied the existence of God or any transcendent moral law, and they viewed any inequality remaining in society as intrinsically and fundamentally unjust. And so they redefined justice to mean equal outcomes. And to secure equal outcomes means taking away from those who have more to redistribute to those who have less. Justice, according to social justice, capital S, capital J, means justice for groups. And guilt in these terms means group guilt. People can be punished from the guilt of their group, even for the sins that their group committed in the way distant past. When Christians hear the words social justice, we instinctively want to say, yes, that sounds great. And many assume that it means access to equal legal rights, equal access to opportunities, and opposition to unjust discrimination. But social justice, capital S, capital J, means the opposite of all of those things. It insists that some groups must have more access to rights and opportunities, and other groups must have less. It creates more discrimination. Social justice is not biblical justice. But hijacking the language of justice has deceived many into going along with the various critical theories which are currently destabilising society by dividing us into competing groups. Let's just consider three of them. What about critical gender theory? Now remember, critical theory is about action. It's about moving towards society where there is social justice in terms of equal outcomes. So what do you do with the unequal outcomes between men and women? Well, during the 1970s, I remember that women's studies courses were introduced in many universities, and the underlying assumption was that all of the social differences that we see in societies between men and women are the result of patriarchal oppression. And anyone questioning that was denounced as sexist. Now, this, I have to tell you, was not about getting fairness for women. It was about destroying the complementary 
male-female differences. I remember back in 1984 when my engagement to marry Bill was announced. A feminist colleague in my school staff room was heard to mutter derisively, only toilets get engaged. And of course that was completely consistent with her philosophy. For a woman to promise lifelong fidelity to a man, well, that was a betrayal of the oppressed class of women. What about those women who claim to be happily married or happy as mothers? Well, they're the victims of a false consciousness. Such deluded women could be liberated by attending consciousness-raising struggle sessions where they swapped stories of oppression and gathered the courage to leave their families. Even better to warn young women before they get trapped. Female students could be enlightened about the evil patriarchy during women's studies courses. But of course, very soon, the category of woman came under attack itself. Because remember, critical theory is about breaking down common sense assumptions. If there's no creator God, if everything's socially constructed, why not deconstruct gender too? Judith Butler wrote Gender Trouble in 1990, in which she insisted that it's oppressive to call anything normal. Those who consider themselves as normal are the oppressors. Their assumption of normality must be stripped away. Queer theory is all about destabilising normality. All boundaries need to be questioned. People need to doubt that there's any such thing as a fixed identity at all. Toleration is not enough. Everything and everyone needs to be de-normed. To claim that anything is natural or normal now may trigger anger and bitterness. What about critical legal theory? Well, remember again, critical theory is about action, moving towards a society with completely equal outcomes. And critical legal theory sees the law as a means to do that. It's a means to remedy past injustice. Traditional ideas of equality before the law, justice is blind, they're regarded as a means by which the privileged kept victims oppressed. Rather, the law can be used to compensate oppressed groups for past and present wrongs. Just remember, in our therapeutic society, if someone thinks their self-claimed identity or orientation has not been respected or affirmed, it may feel to them as actual violence. Words are seen as at least as bad as physical harm. And that's why police might drop everything to rush to the scene of an alleged non-crime hate incident, because a tweet could kill someone's sense of self. In Britain, over a five-year period, the police investigated 120,000 non-crime hate incidents. But a property crime, on the other hand, could be regarded as rightful reparations. How did that person lay their hands on such a fancy car anyway? It's about time for the redistribution of some resources. In, Vicky, in 2020, the activist Vicky Osterwell wrote a book entitled In Defence of Looting, in which she defends looting as pro proletarian shopping and claims that property rights are innately, structurally white supremacist. If someone who commits a crime is deemed to be part of a victim class, their crime may be excused if it is thought to result from their disadvantage. Some attorneys in America have published lists of crimes they will not prosecute, and that is because the perpetrators are assumed to be from a victim class. Unsurprisingly, this has led to a sharp rise in violent crime. 
But if a crime is perpetrated against someone in a victim class, then the sentence can be heavier because it can be classified as a hate crime. And so justice is no longer blind. We're no longer equal before the law. Theodore Roosevelt famously said that no one should be above the law, but nobody should be beneath it either. All human beings should be afforded the dignity of individual responsibility. And what about critical race theory? Racism is a horrible, ugly reality. Until 1967, interracial marriage was still against the law in 16 states in America. The American author Shelby Steele recalls that as a youngster, when he arrived with his dad in any new town, the first thing they had to do was find someone who could give them the inside story about accommodation, local services, where they would not be turned away because of their race. Racism is a sin. We are all made in God's image. We all have the same first parents. As Paul says, from one man, he made every nation of men, Acts 17, 26. Therefore, the Christian view is that we should view, treat everybody with equal dignity and respect. But Robin DiAngelo and other advocates of critical race theory seem to insist that treating people equally, whatever their skin color, is dangerous. They view colour blindness as racist. They insist that the priority is to secure reparative justice for groups of people who have historically been oppressed. There must be preferential treatment for such groups. The black American author John McWhorter argues in his excellent book Woke Racism that critical race theory pushes us towards seeing individuals first and foremost in terms of racial identity. And McWhorter resents the fact that his daughters are growing up in a culture where they're regarded as sort of token poster children rather than individuals. And he writes, I consider it as nothing less than my duty as a black person to write this book. And McWhorter's concerns are well-founded. As critical race theory makes its way into schools, children are directed to think of themselves as either victims or irredeemably guilty. In the zero-sum assumption that some groups are, racially in, uh, are inexorably in racial conflict with each other, children with parents of different ethnicities end up conflicted and confused. Rennie Edo Lodge maintains that the vast, super, vast majority of white people have, quote, never known what it means to embrace a person of colour as a true equal with thoughts and feelings that are as valid as their own, end quote. How, might one ask, can she possibly know? And what of the many, many happy and successful marriages which cross ethnic boundaries? And what are the children of those marriages supposed to make of such utterly divisive teaching? Going back to Robin DiAngelo, she insists, quote, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. White identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist outside the system of white supremacy. And so many young people are being taught that white people can only strive to be less white and they can't get it right in relating to people of other groups. D'Angelo suggests limiting smiling when engaging with people from a different ethnicity. Why? Well, she says, smiling, quote, allows white people to mask an anti-blackness that is foundational to our existence as white, end quote. Can you think, please, of any better way to mis sow mistrust? Don't smile, you'll betray your racism if you do. Oh, but hang on. If I don't smile, won't, won't that be seen as racist? Well, to escape that no-win situation, 
Some may find it safer to segregate themselves and mix only with people of their own group. How utterly tragic, what a betrayal of our common humanity. Critical race theory stokes up suspicion and resentment and it forces us to focus on what divides us. So those are just three of the critical theories. Time prevents us with, from dealing with others such as critical pedagogy or post-colonial studies. But all the different critical theories share common themes. Society is divided between oppressor groups and oppressed. The perception or lived experience of the oppressed can override objective truth. My feelings don't respect your facts. Now let's stand back and take an overview of five of the pillars of critical theory. Number one, truth claims are power grabs. Remember, academics at the Frankfurt School denied the existence of God and viewed religion as a false consciousness. If there's no God out there, there's no ground for ultimate truth. Number two, universal explanations are suspect. The founders of critical theory denied any out there authority, so we're left with a lived experience or perception of each individual. In some university departments now, it's said that objectivity is a, quote, harmful research practice. Authentic knowledge, it's said, is achieved within different communities. And people outside those groups can't have access to that knowledge. That's often referred to as standpoint theory. We might better understand it as the latest iteration of the old heresy of Gnosticism. Pillar number three. Reason, logic, science are tools of oppression. Some say that science is a meta-narrative that serves to uphold the establishment. They believe that straight, white, cis males from privileged backgrounds invented logical methods of legitimizing knowledge in order to oppress other people. Professor Rochelle Gutierrez claims, quote, mathematics itself operates as whiteness, end quote. Asking to test truth claims by means of science or evidence is playing the games by rules set by the privileged. The tools used by the privileged, which could include science, rational argument, evidence, should be replaced with a lived experience of people in oppressed groups. I remember many years ago as a student being so insulted by the idea that logic is a male construct. Yeah. If one cultural group uses traditional medicine, including witchcraft or magic, demanding to test that scientifically could be viewed as cultural oppression. Or consider, scientific innovation can help deaf people to hear. But critical theory, as applied to disability studies, interprets that as an application of the bio-power of science to disrespect the authentic lived experience of a deaf person. Medical interventions to ameliorate the conditions of disabled people are viewed with suspicion by this school of thought. Those who choose to use those medical interventions may be seen as identity traitors. Fourth pillar, don't question my experience. In recent years, countless young people have been damaged by gender reassignment medications and surgeries. Their individual perception of being in the wrong body is allowed to prevail over the objective truth of biological reality. When we are not allowed to challenge anybody's experience, however bizarre their claims, a society is on the way to collapsing into unreason. And fifthly, all authority structures are repressive. Remember, 
The aim of critical theory is action in order to get to equal outcomes. And to get there, the institutions propping up society must be destabilized. Trust in authority has to be undermined. After the Second World War, the rightful horror evoked by the uncovering of Nazi atrocities was exploited to stigmatize all authority as fascist. Teachers, parents, lawyers, politicians, all authority figures were suspected of protecting the powerful and suppressing the powerless. What about the impact on the church? Well, under the cover of the deceptive phrase social justice, critical theory has been smuggled in to all the institutions of the West, including numerous churches. And it enters under the pretext of reform, but it enters not to reform, but to destroy. Firstly, many now are persuaded that Christianity is the religion of a majority culture which has oppressed minority groups. Now, this view rests on a whole-scale rewriting of history. Remember, critical theory is about mobilizing activism rather than seeking objective reality. And it ignores the positive and transformative effect that the biblical worldview has had not only in countries in the West, but globally. Secondly, critical theory teaches us to assume that claims to absolute morality are offensive. And so biblical morality is viewed as inflicting harm. Teaching on biblical repentance can offend people, hence the demands for a wide-ranging ban on so-called conversion therapy. Now, yes, in the past, wrongs have been done in the name of Christ that did not reflect living Christianity, but the LGBTQI++++++ movement insists that the failure to celebrate every identity or sexual preference is bigoted and hateful. Therefore, affirming biblical morality is viewed as homophobic. It's tragic to hear church leaders apologizing for 2,000 years of church history, apologizing for Christ's own teaching, a man shall leave father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh, Matthew 19, 5 to 6. James Lindsay, the co-author of Cynical Theories, is an atheist, but he warns Christians that social justice, aka critical theory, aims to destroy Christianity from within. The language of social justice, he believes, is used to guilt trip well-meaning Christians. But when they're duped into endless apologies for the past wrongs they are told they have committed, James Lindsay says brutally that they are being played as useful idiots. Douglas Murray's latest book, The War on the West, also criticizes many church leaders for naively surrendering to progressive demands. How foolish they are to continually apologize for how supposedly evil and oppressive the church has been in the past. No surprise, Douglas Murray says, when the mob turns on the churches. In July 2021, in one week, 30 churches in Canada were burned down. Number three, critical theory presents a false gospel. It has a false view of humanity. The Bible insists that we are all equally created in the image of God, but critical theory pushes us into group identities. It has a false view of sin. The Bible teaches that we are all equally sinful. In Adam, all die. Critical theory paints some groups as evil oppressors, but others as innocent victims. The Bible teaches that each one personally will be held accountable to God, and we shouldn't punish children for the sins of their fathers. But according to critical theory, whole groups are condemned as guilty. One generation could be held guilty for the sins committed by previous generations and called on to pay reparations and make amends. And it has a false view of salvation. The Bible teaches that all equally can find full and free forgiveness in Christ. 
But according to critical theory, oppressor groups bear a guilt that can never properly be atoned for. And of course, it has a false view of authority because individual experience trumps everything else, including the word of God. So how do we respond? Many evangelicals don't really want to engage with what they call culture wars. They see it as a distraction from preaching the gospel. Just bring people to Jesus, they say. And it's tempting, very tempting, to stay quiet and avoid trouble. We don't want to cause needless offence. We do want to be sensitive to the experience of fellow human beings who have suffered appalling abuse and discrimination. But the elevation of personal experience over objective truth is bearing bitter fruit. And we have been put here for such a time as this. How should we respond? Well, certainly we are to pray for a massive spiritual awakening. God does sometimes work in extraordinary ways to revive his people and then transform cultures. But we are to be faithful and we are to be patient. Rebuilding the foundations may be a long-term project. And when engaging with critical theory, remember, firstly, don't be taken in by the claim that we should use critical theory as a useful tool. Many suggest that we should use elements of critical theory to critique injustice. Certainly, we should apply critical thinking to any question. And certainly, we must challenge all injustice. But we don't actually need critical theory to help us do that. We've already seen that true justice is defined by the God of justice and his eternal moral law. Critical theory comes up with solutions for injustice that only make matters worse because they undermine God's moral law and they contradict the creation mandates. Hostility to the idea of a transcendent God is fundamental to critical theory. We each construct our own reality. That leads to the blurring of all distinctions between truth and falsehood. And it ends up with the concept of multiple contradictory truths. It ends up with the claim that my feelings don't care about your facts. Don't be surprised then if in the Australian state of Victoria, pastors who are accused of hurting the feelings of people who hear their sermons may be called in for re-education or even threatened with imprisonment. Now, at several points, I've referred to critical theory as a virus, and that's simply because those on the inside use that metaphor for themselves. For example, in a paper, Women's Studies as a Virus, Instructional Feminism and the Projection of Danger, the authors say that one of the aims of women's studies is, quote, to equip students to function as viruses that infect, unsettle, and disrupt traditional and entrenched fields, end quote. And in fact, the metaphor perfectly perfectly describes the various critical theories arising from critical theory. I wonder if you remember that classic Disney song, Never Smile at a Crocodile. It includes the immortal lines, don't be taken in by its friendly grin. It's imagining how well you'd fit within its skin. And just remember that warning when considering the claims of critical theory, especially when clothed in the smiling language of social justice. Don't think that if you smile back nicely, it will leave you alone. Oh no. Author and journalist Andrew Doyle warns that to go along with the demands of social justice only encourage activists to advance further claims. He says, quote, they will continue to deny, deny biological reality and threaten you if you do not acquiesce. They will tell you that the kind of colour blindness practised by Martin Luther King is a form of racism rather than an exquisite goal worth pursuing. They will bully people in the name of compassion, promote division and call it progressive and rehabilitate a new form of racism under the guise of tolerance. And we could add, they want parents who teach their children about biblical morality to be criminalised. They demand 
preaching that calls out sin to be outlawed. No amount of winsomeness will make them go away. Secondly, teach biblical ethics and practice live out Christ-like care. Many today say it's loving to affirm people whatever they claim. But the Apostle Paul had severe condemnation for those who approve what is evil, Romans 1.32. Back in the day when the Abortion Act was passed in Westminster in 1967, many evangelicals stayed quiet. They didn't want to put people off the gospel. They didn't want to hurt the feelings of women who had abortions. But over the decades, I've heard the sad stories of women who say, why didn't anyone tell me I was killing my own baby? And their lives have been blighted by endless regret. As we oppose the lies, we feel only compassion for those who have been deceived by the lies. We're to love and pray for them. And when we expose the lies, we must do so with gentleness and respect. There's no point winning an argument if we lose the person we're speaking to because of the manner in which we make the argument. Let's remember that in the unforgiving culture of identity politics, many are experiencing deep alienation and profound loneliness. And the body of Christ, by contrast, exhibits love, care, compassion and concern. And it honours Christ when our local churches function as Christ's body on earth, offering communities of love, joy, peace. Remember the Apostle Peter instructed believers in a hostile culture to live good lives marked by good deeds, 1 Peter 2.12. And that countercultural self-giving had a mighty impact during the first three centuries of the Christian church, and it still does so today. Thirdly, be confident in God's good purposes. Critical theory has undermined the foundations of our civilization, and many today are locked in pessimistic despair. They're living without God and they have no hope in the world. They lack confidence that we can know anything for sure or that there's any real meaning in life. And the unloosing of all moral norms has resulted in brokenness and pain. The claim that there is no God, no absolute morality, no ultimate truth ends in disaster for individuals and societies. As the great American thinker Michael Novak wrote, to surrender the claims of truth upon human beings is to surrender the earth to thugs. By contrast, we're confident that living according to God's truth leads to individual and social flourishing. The creator God is the ground of truth, reality, justice, morality. The only firm foundation for the defense of human rights and dignity is the truth that we are all created in the image of God. So we're confident. We know that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot ever overcome it. The gospel offers forgiveness and healing to all. Christ's work of redemption achieved the unravelling of the curse in every respect. He defeated all evil when he rose from the dead and ascended to his Father's right hand. And when he returns, we will see the final outworking of that triumph. All sin, evil, oppression, injustice will be judged, must be judged, either in the person of Christ or in hell. Justice will be done and the earth will be renewed and restored. So we have good news for all people and all creation. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life and he promises to all who come to him, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Thanks for watching. Don't forget you can also get hold of the booklet Critical Theory, Challenging Truth and Reality and the shorter leaflet on our website at christian.org.uk forward slash critical theory. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to colleagues about some books written by non-Christian authors that shed some extra contemporary light on critical theory. 
the ideology behind woke activism and cancel culture. See you then.